Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Andrew Taki Apaya, thank you very much for joining me in this conversation and it's good to see you again. Actually, I'm very excited uh, about the work you're doing, uh, Andrew, because um, you are an entrepreneur uh, putting in place um, a payment infrastructure on an existing uh, ecosystem uh, that is probably not very well understood outside of Africa. And when people outside of Africa think about payments in Africa, we only think, um, you know, uh, M-Pesa and, and uh, um, you know, and the various banking payment networks. This is going to be an interesting and long conversation, partially to help people outside of Africa to understand ZPay and, and the landscape in which you operate, but also to explore uh, some of the business decisions that you've been able to make um, in or you're making uh, in order to grow your business and to uh, work closer with the banks, work closer with the telcos and so on. Uh, so uh, as a start, uh, give us a sense of uh, ZPay. Okay, so thank you very much. Um, I actually like the comments you made, which is the fact that we're trying to build onto an existing ecosystem. Okay, so that's exactly what we came into market to do. Zebra is an inclusive platform and are designed in such a way that we'll be able to bring all the different parts of the ecosystem together into one single platform to transact. What we do at a FinTech originally is to enable remittances to be paid into mobile wallets across all wallets in Ghana, going through our standard, which is our ZPay wallets. Um, what we also do is to aggregate the bulk payments so we make it possible for government, aid agencies, etc., to be able to reach everybody in the country where they need to make payments to them. Then we also make it possible for peer-to-peer -peer payments across multi-network. Now, let me also talk about the African ecosystem slightly, slightly in a different yes. twist, which will give you a better understanding of the ecosystem in Ghana. Globally, everybody runs on just one thing. It's a card wheel. You either pay on Visa, pay on MasterCard, or in, in Visa, Union Pay. <clears throat> the African ecosystem is a lot more robust in that we have omni-channel rails. We have, when it comes to wallets, we have about maybe 80 wallet providers on the continent. ZPay, MTN, Orange Money, Move, Africash, Airtel Money, Airtel Tigo, and Tigo. Do you see what I mean? So yep. we have multiplayer market, and these wallets are instruments. So in our, in our environment, we have legislated instruments that are, are acceptable for payments. It's wallets, cards, check, and cash. So these are the only four instruments that the law recognizes to, to be used for payments. Of these instruments we built our rails. So today our rails are not just card rails, but there are all these four rails plus a bank account. So all of a sudden, when you're on a platform like ZPay, you have access to wallets across 23 markets in Africa. You have access to over 20 million bank cards on the continent using Visa Direct. You have access to bank accounts, either through the Visa Direct angle or switch by switch across markets. Now, this is what really a payment ecosystem should be like. 
and that's the robustness of our ecosystem. It's just rather unfortunate that um, a lot of the time, everybody just talks about the CAD rails and MPESA. The African payments ecosystem is estimated to be $181 billion. CAD remittance, which is about $70 billion. So it's a very big ecosystem. And the key, the key players on that ecosystem is the likes of Ghana, the likes of Kenya, of course, the likes of um, Uganda, Ivory Coast is picking up significantly. Ivory Coast is starting to look quite exciting. Mozambique is beginning to look exciting as well. So these are the key market players on the ecosystem. Let me tell you what the ecosystem, ecosystem looks like from outside of Africa, right? The first thing that is very interesting uh, is the number of wallets that already are in Africa. Africa then, has about 250 million wallets. And Africa's wallets constitute 90% of the global wallets. I'm very curious to drill down on, on what, what we mean by wallets. I'm sure that all, each of the wallets want to dominate uh, um, you know, uh, their own little ecosystem. It may be loyalty, it may be spending, it may be uh, retail, um, you know, um, locked into specific relationships uh, and so on. And the fact that um, you know, there are still players who think that they can play the wallet game, okay? The second dimension is the fact that regulators like in Ghana have been imposing interoperability from the beginning. So you, you actually operate in an environment where there is uh, incredible interoperability. Um, and when there is interoperability, um, do am I right to uh, imagine that uh, uh, ZPay sits on top of the wallets? Okay. The values that you provide... Are they in, on top of what the wallets do? Okay, so ZPay is actually the only licensed wallet at the moment in Ghana. We wear full wallet with a full complement service, and we sit on interpretability. It's interesting, actually. We're the only platform that has both the back end and the front end of interpretability. So with us on the back end, we can move money to all networks, all wallets, all bank accounts, etc. But on the front end, our consumers can do the same as well. Because you see, we have one simple belief. Financial inclusion will only be attained through an inclusive approach. Yes. So let's first be inclusive and give the consumer a choice. Okay. Let's, let's bring efficiency to the ecosystem and the consumer will stay with us. Okay. Now, uh, can you place wallets um, in terms of uh, where it operates uh, from something like uh, M-Pesa, for example. M-Pesa operates uh, on a device and uh, it's, not, it's not necessarily a wallet. There's another dimension that uh, people outside of Africa um, you know, would find very interesting, which is the role of the telco players. Um, you know, it seems to be that in Africa, the telcos are successful. They are players in the payments uh, space. Uh, they have uh, successfully monetized uh, the, the relationships they have. Um, there are many countries around the world where telcos try to get into payments and never get off the ground. When we talk about wallets in our part of the world, EMI wallets, it's basically a, a, a digital wallet attached to your phone number, which allows you to do cashing. Cashing means receive money into your wallet, allows you to do cash out, which means take money out of your wallet allows you to do a peer-to-peer -peer transfer, which is to move money from one point to another point. 
and then allows you to receive your remittance in your wallet. Okay, so these are sort of the basic. Then on the back of the basic will be airtime. So you can purchase airtime. Um, you can actually send people airtime, right? Then you can start to do other things like micro insurance, lending, buy um, loans, etc. So that's a full complement of a wallet. And PESA does the same thing, ZPay does the same thing. In the banking ecosystem, what we have in the ecosystem from a retail perspective is your traditional retail bank. Then in your traditional retail bank, you have, you have the HNIs or world management. Then after HNI, you have your mid-segment, which is usually premium, premier. Then after that, you have your mass market. So after the mass market business, which failed considerably, especially you know, on the African continent, because the African banks could just not reach the critical mass. They could only reach up to the middle premium. So you find that every bank, every customer would be multi-banked by five banks, commonplace, which is wrong. So then we had financial inclusion, which we could not integrate into banking. So in there, we ended up with mobile financial services, which is basically what we providers of wallets do. When we, the providers of wallets, become that critical mass platform that is enabling the very bottom of base to have access to fun banking systems right. or have access to financial instruments, which in this case will be a wallet. It's called mobile financial services. By the other side of the world, they fail at it. Sometimes I think it's three reasons. The first reason I think is maybe they do not have a strong critical mass that have a need because a card business is strong. Some markets are card markets. If you go to Latin America, these are strong card markets. If you go to United States of America, these are strong card markets. That's why you find prepaid cards being sold on the streets. If you come to our part of the world, because we're not card people and we're mobile people, your average African has a mobile phone. It's easier for this to grow faster. Right. So on the continent, when it comes to mobile financial services, we have ZPay, which is the only independent non-telco-led MFS. Then you have Airtel, Airtel Money, which is obviously um, telco-led. You have Pico Cash, which is telco-led. You have MTM Mobile Money, which is telco-led. You have Vodafone Cash, which is telco-led, and more. What makes us powerful is that with our platform, all you need is an active phone number. You don't need a SIM card to be onboarded. So all of a sudden, every telco's customer is my customer. So I'm able to onboard more wallets than they would all ever be able to onboard, which is probably what the future of mobile financial services looks like. Now, what you've just described is uh, incredibly amazing and incredibly um, sensitive uh, because it's not necessarily a formula that can work uh, in every country. Um, yes. there, the countries which are well-banked uh, does not need this layer. And yet in Africa, uh, you have the telcos, which um, you know, perfected the wallet model, um, uh, dominating, uh, especially countries uh, which are in the lower end of the per capita GDP, 
Uh, and then having different rates of success when they move into countries with a higher level of GDP. So, so something that yeah. might work in a Kenya may not work in a Ghana, may not work in a South Africa. Uh, yeah. You're actually talking about uh, a very incremental difference um, in the space that you're in. So ZPay, what's your, what's your critical success factor? Is it I'll number of functionality? Okay. Is it interoperability? Given the fact that you actually serve, um, you know, microfinance, the, 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 the small ticket uh, value customers. What we did is we identified the gap in the market, right? Now, the gap in the market at the time was a bridge between the diaspora and the locals and the distance. So before we came into Disrupt Bank, your average remittance receiver would have to travel 50 to 100 miles to be able to pick up their cash in the hinterland. And no more money went to the hinterland than it came into the cities and the urban areas. So what we said was that we're going to build a bridge between diasporans and these guys on the local end by making it possible for them to be able to receive their money and collect it from the agent network. And then we build an interpretable platform that is able to cross every single network without being on board. So what makes it powerful then is that your average MoneyGram customer can send money straight into a money into a ZPay wallet. The MoneyGram receiver will then walk into any agent's network, whether it's Airtel, ZPay, Vodafone, MTN, and withdraw their money. So all of a sudden, you're layer on the layer on the layer above the ecosystem. And therefore, you built, you built an invisible bridge using some form of artificial intelligence to be able to reach everybody. So that's really the edge we have. In terms of functionality, we're also a single source. So on our network, you can buy airtime for everybody else. So it just makes sense to be on our network and be able to do everything than to be okay. only on MTN and only have to buy MTN only airtime if you're on MTN. Is that a function of marketing or is that a function of technology? It's a function of both market intel and market penetration, which is all one, and then also technology. I don't think it's a function of robustness of technology. It's a function of agility in your technology. The more agile technology is, the better it is. You see, a lot of times people think that single loops are the answers, but no, single loop is only monopoly. When you have an open platform, you're more likely to sustain the game which is what we've done, basically. So we're just an open platform that allows everybody to come on board. Okay. So you give the consumer a lot more choice. Everyone would, um, would come on board if it's free. Um, you know, what's the revenue uh, model for what you do? Uh, because the moment you start charging a fee, um, you know, you, you, need to, you need to pay a cost. Uh, each customer that comes on board is a, is a cost to you. So... Um, how do you amortize your cost? First of all, I've seen networks charge free and not seen any uptake. All they've seen is volume. But you're working with you're, you're working with the bottom of base. That's where the money is. And the money is at the bottom of the barrel. But at the same time, that is where it's perceived to be the most difficult. Um, we don't offer the service for free. We actually charge 0.5% to be able to transact on our network. We're, we're 0.5 cheaper than everybody. We also charge for termination. So every time the, the MTOs terminate onto our platform, they pay us for that. Okay, then we also make settlement margins. So in, in, in essence, we've got a mixture of revenue, airtime, 
loans, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really the model you want to run. What you now want to do is once you've got the model, you grow the critical mass. Today, we have about 2 million users and we're growing. I mean, this year alone, year to date, we've done about 400 and 400, 401 million dollars. Okay, right. which represents about 11% of total remittance to Ghana alone. We, yeah, we do 23 markets in Africa. Out of the 23, we have very nine very strong active markets. Ivory Coast is our second active market, shot up significantly, looking very exciting about the last eight weeks. One thing I noticed about uh, remittance and payments in Africa is um, how they discover, I call them invisible rivers, um, you know, from Ghana to Tanzania, um, you know, yes. and, and so on, that, that um, nobody would have imagined existed in the past. So I'm, I'm actually curious, like when you say it's pan-African, how did you choose your markets? Um, you know, uh, what's common about these markets? Are they the more developed ones where the regulation maybe is a lot more developed? And is FX uh, um, a, a source of income as well? FX would always be a source of income. We call them settlement gains because we're wholesaler. We, 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 we don't do price discovery, but we settle in wholesale, so we make margins on wholesale. Um, just, to, just to sort of take it the two steps back for your question, you, you cannot almost get it right. There's not a science per se to choose the market, but definitely one of the things that make us move is where remittance is going. So we follow the money. According to DSMA, Remittance is the fastest way to grow mobile money. As we follow the money, sometimes we get it right, sometimes we got to wait. Then the last thing you do is regulations, because regulations in Africa is, are not and is not homogeneous. What Ghana will be flexible about, Nigeria will not be about it at all. So what you do is you first focus on where remittance and where there's a mobile money uptake. Then you also focus on where there's a lot more diasporans outside. When you've got this model right, then you open up the ecosystem. When you open up the ecosystem, sometimes you will win, sometimes you will not. I'll give you a perfect example. We opened Uganda before Zimbabwe. We thought Uganda would be the next bright market for us at the time we're opening Uganda two years ago. We didn't see the uptake the way we wanted to see it. We're expecting to do about 40 to 100,000 transactions a month. Uganda, we're only doing about 30 to 40,000 transactions. Then we immediately opened Zimbabwe. And gosh, blimey, Zimbabwe crashed overnight. Then we did Ivory Coast. Then we went into Mozambique. Mozambique, we went into Mozambique because there's a lot of Southern Africans who move out of Mozambique into the Southern part of Africa to work. Right. A lot of Mozambicans in Portugal, even in the United Kingdom, there are a lot of Mozambicans in South Africa. Then we also uncover that the Mozambican youth tend to be a lot more upwardly mobile, using mobile money, etc. And these, they tend to be the bulk of the population. So we, hit, we did that as well. And guess what? It's been a success. It's light up overnight. So it's really a very subjective conversation. But sometimes you get it right, sometimes you don't. But what matters that you have active business, then you grow the ecosystem. Coming back to your income source, which of the income source is the most important to you? Do you are you a deposit-taking institution? Um, you know, so that in itself would be an income source for you. 
um, you know, and, and the loan business, for example, and its potential for being a, um, uh, um, a okay. important source of income. So the top line income for us is commissions and fees. The second top line is settlement. Then the last would be all other income, which includes funded income. Now back to the, the lending model. Obviously, lending in our part of the world is by algorithm. So how many, who does the most receipts, who does the most transactions, et cetera. A few other things go into the algorithm. But we have a slightly unique approach to doing this. And the approach we use is that um, you, you don't want to just lend to anybody. You want to be able to lend and collect back. So the best approach is partnerships. So we have a partnership with a few sort of authorized players that we can work with to do that. Then you ask, are we deposit taking? We're deposit taking to the extent that we have an instrument. It's uh, a consumer who decides how he wants to retain that instrument. I'm actually trying to place you exactly in that dimension. You know, you're not a new bank in the European sense, and um, you're not a microfinance outlet in the Asian sense. And when you say that you use an algorithm, how close is that to maybe the peer-to-peer -peer lenders in China who have uh, had relationships with supply chain networks, for example, uh, and, and they actually use um, data such as um, who you have in your mobile phone as friends? Is the credit scoring um, model uh, something that you've been able to play around with? The credit scoring model, there are, there are many types of algorithms around the place. And um, for us today, it's largely around the remitter, the receiver, and how often they receive and which networks they receive and their behaviors. But I think it goes beyond that. And I think that the Chinese model is a very good one. It's one of the ones that ultimately would want to adopt. And what I've come to realize is about finding the right partnership. Because when, when you find the right partnership, you can build the right, you can build the right food chain or value chain and be able to leverage it. How much of a co-founder were you with ZPay? Uh, you know, did you start <coughs> ZPay yourself or were you, were you investing into a, um, you know, in an existing platform? Uh, just that relationship part of it. Um, you know, what's your role okay. in ZPay? Well, I, I'm actually the majority shareholder. Um, I'm also the managing director. And I, I found that six, seven years ago. It's not a model that you would have carried uh, through a banking system, right, at that point. And bankers were not in, interested in um, micro payments and, and uh, small value payments at that point. Well, that's a problem with bankers in our part of the world. A lot of time we don't see it. It's a, it's a high sense of obligation, thinking that everything, everything with a tax financial services it belongs to banks. But let me tell you the most scary thing. We all thought that retail banking would die maybe 20 years down the lane. But in COVID, I can tell you for free, I mean, this is nothing. This is for nothing. That retail banking will not survive in 2021. And all banks will have to chase their model in our parts of the world, especially Ghana, Nigeria, Uganda. I mean, Kenya is gone. Let me tell you why I'm saying this. Today, we do micropayments, we do remittances, we do nano loans, we do peer-to-peer -peer transfers, we do SME payments, we do micro-insurance, we even do some amount, a form of pensions. That is all retail banking. 
and we do it at the lower cost overhead. I have a total of about 32 staff across the world, seven close to 2.5 million consumers. My gross profit margin is consistently 86% year on year, even in the dark days. The simple reason is that we have a lower and cheaper cost outlay or overlay compared to the banks, compared to all the robust platforms that they put together, which never work. By the time they finish building all these demilitarized zones, they're so light, they're so, they're so heavy, they're not able to do much. Whereas I, I can come into market and outsource my security to CrowdStrike, which is what I do. And when I finish outsourcing my security to CrowdStrike, I have peace of mind. Then I can focus on innovation. And then I can host my services in cloud with Digital Ocean, which is one of the best platforms you can find. Very agile. I'm just right. saying that the cost efficiency is so high. My cost margin to serve a single customer it's just about 10 cents. Give us a sense of the technology investments that you do. Okay. Uh, how much of the functionality is done in-house and how fast it is, is it? Um, and, and therefore, who is your competitor? Because uh, the, the barriers for entry will therefore be uh, you know, quite, uh, quite low. Okay, well, just so you know, the bar- barriers to entry is very high. Regulatory capital alone is about $5 million. What makes you successful as a fintech is if you build a back end with the right framework. You see, if you build a, a framework that is like a proper rail, a switch, then you can put your agile, so you're able to pile onto it easier. But if you build a if you build a very rigid, single-handed, single-line framework, then what it is is that you have to patch or rebuild again. So what we did from day one is learn the mistakes of everybody. We just built a multi-framework, multi-layer back end which allows us to plug onto the rail easier. Then we built a simple front end to be able to carry it. Today, we're on WhatsApp. We run payments via WhatsApp. Um, we're looking to become the biggest player on that side. Is that WhatsApp's platform or is it you using WhatsApp's platform? We're using WhatsApp's rail to call up transactions, okay. which is really what it is. It's, it's, it's a lookup feature. Look, USSD, WhatsApp, apps, these are all lookup features. You're using it to call up transactions. NFC, NFC is a lookup feature. Um, QR code is a lookup feature. It's just being, you see, what the world is not smart at is finding the simplest way to call up a transaction. What I'd say, it's about how you can innovate a simple platform. So we use two-factor authentication, one-time passwords to, as part of the security control. Right. right. Then we have the encryption and decryption protocols. So it's about allowing a multi-layer protocol on your platform. Financial inclusion will come through an inclusive approach, not a single loop. So if they make a mistake and go for a single loop, it's, it's, it's going to bite them in time. At the end of the day, the concept of WhatsApp is not proprietary anymore. Today, anybody can come up with their chat platform. WeChat is not a WhatsApp platform. If they do that and they're not careful, what you find is you find markets adapting to their own channels. But I, I think that they are smart and I think they will get it. Uh, maybe these are, so these are sort of localized demonstrations they are doing. Everybody does demonstrations. But I think in time, they will realize that it makes more sense to drive critical with players like ourselves 
who will just drive it in for you. The concept of Visa Direct, Visa builds the rails, they give it to us. We populate it in the world. Now, why are you doing that? Because uh, Visa, uh, as far as it can, wants to um, preserve its original intermediation model, um, you know, with, with uh, being an interchange. You are an interchange uh, uh, to some extent, but less of an interchange than Visa is. And Visa is expensive on top of that. The universe that you're creating, Visa never had that universe because they were expensive. You know, and here you are having um, going out and collecting the mass market. Well, look, I, it's, it's an interesting point you've made. Let me put it this way. Um, in financial inclusion, you need an inclusive model. Rails will differ. People will prefer different rails for different, different reasons. What I, what I think is happening and will ultimately happen is that um, you'll find that Visa, players like Visa, would eventually acquire a wallet provider and play the wallet game with that provider, or they'll build their own wallets, which they've done through their virtual card and system. From from where I sit, Visa would always be a partner. What do they provide you? Because Visa, as a model, just does not have a wallet. In fact, every proposition that Visa creates uh, is basically reimagining the physical card in the digital space, and that's it. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, and it just yeah. can't imagine another universe, and it doesn't want to. In fact, uh, the whole idea of Visa is to destroy um, the the wallet model that you have, uh, because yours is a very um, incremental, very sensitive e yeah. ecosystem. Just one step outside the ecosystem, and and your model doesn't work. Um, so you're in a very sweet sweet spot. Uh, Visa needs you. Uh, you don't. Um, Visa needing us is pretty clear, which is why they've opened our Visa Direct to us. Let me tell you the benefit of our Visa Direct. Unfortunately, apart from our wallet system, which can take you to all wallets across the continent, Visa is the only player that can take you to all bank accounts via Visa Direct on the continent from a single source. So I see it more of a collaborative effort. I think they have a lot of respect for us. Um, we definitely have a lot of respect for them. And um, we'll see how the partnerships will pan out. But as it stands today, we are the key player. If you want to grow the model, you come to us, we grow with you. What about the other remittance players, everyone from Western Union to the new models of the old game, which is TransferWise, for example, uh, you know, who's trying to revolutionize, but at the end of the day, they're no different from MoneyGram and, and so on. Like in your original relationship with MoneyGram, what was the value that you were providing and how do you view the remittance players, the, the ones that, um, you know, desperately need to revolutionize and the new guys like TransferWise? Okay, so what, what we do, which is beautiful, is that we give everybody digital distribution. So... In the, in the money transfer business, there are three players. There's what I call the traditional MTOs, without mentioning names. Then there are the, the middle players who have come in either by virtue of providing an app which is free, etc. Then we have the mom and pops, or what we call the corridor specialist. They are small players. It's a single family. They've been doing this for 30 years. Every month, people leave them checks and then they do the cash and transfer on their behalf, etc. All of these guys are exposed to one thing, distribution. They need to fly into Africa and go and see every regulator and every single bank to be regulated 
and to push traffic through. Yet when they come on my platform, they have a single access point to a single API, which gives them multiple markets. I've done the regulatory work and I've built distribution for them. So all of a sudden, the mom and pop has the same leverage as the big player or the app player. And that's the magic we bring to the microsystem. So we make distribution efficiency for them. We make distribution very efficient for them and very easy. And these guys love it. So for us, the game is digital distribution, helping to build and expand an ecosystem that existed but nobody knew about. But at the same time, you need to run faster because the, the wolves are running after you. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, being that ubiquitous platform and, and the ease with which you created it, uh, it can easily be created by you know, other players. Uh, so how do you, the barrier of entry high for your, your competitors? One of the things we do is efficiency in service delivery. We're available 24 hours. Um, our wallets are agile and they're they are affordable. So consumers love it. Um, we have a lot of retail promo. We spend back into the ecosystem. Every year, every year, if we process two to $3 million in revenue, you can be sure that a good $1 million will be spent on the ecosystem. We give free airtime. We do things that make the consumer happy and comfortable. Because for us, we didn't come into this space to be rich. We came into this space to solve a problem. And in solving the problem, we become wealthy. We've actually just finished putting up our corporate building, a state-of-the-art corporate building right in the heart of Accra, cantonments. We're just not changing payments, we're changing our lifestyle. So we, we raised $350,000 years ago. We bootstrapped it. Today, everything is internally generated funds. We've grown. We're, we're a classic model or a classic story of a local company that can grow in an enabling environment. And thanks to this administration, the present administration of Ghana, your friend, the governor, they've, been, they've put in very enabling policies that have allowed local companies like us to grow and thrive. How sensitive are you to interest margins? Like if the interest rates start to decrease uh, dramatically, uh, in Africa, the interest margins are, are much wider. That in itself, uh, is a differentiator in why certain models work better in Africa than in mar- markets where the interest margins have collapsed completely. So uh, is that, does that work in your favor? Well, you see, any, any way the market goes will always work in our favor because we make a margin on top of price. So it's whatever the mar- prices will make a margin. Now, the beauty is that because we have a multi-layer product focus, we're able to survive because if one will hit one product on, on this side, might not hit another product on that side. And you complement it together to grow. And we've just scratched the surface in dollars. So we, there's so much to be done. We are the payment partner for MasterCard and the government of Ghana for the COVID-19 payments in Ghana. Absolutely phenomenal. It's exciting to see all these initiatives going through our platform. Every day, there's a different initiative. There's a different conversation. Yours is a model that originated in Ghana, which is a you know uh, arguably a middle-income country in in, in Africa uh, and stable um, and um, and with the regulatory aspects. Um, at the same time, um, you are meeting a need where the banks haven't gone into. Um, you know, so uh, if if uh, Ghana was a little bit more. 
developed. Uh, maybe uh, you know the the business model that you have uh, may not have taken off uh, because the banks would have met that. So, would you say that you might be on your way to becoming a bank yourself? Well, I I think that one thing we will become is a financial services supermarket. Whether we'll be a fully capital adequate adequacy bank or we'll be a sub tier bank like a new bank, I don't know. But one thing I know is that we're going to be a financial services supermarket. When we talk new banks in Europe, the one thing they do well is they onboard very quickly. Um, you know, doing sixty thousand new customers a month, no problem. The thing they don't do very well is that the balance sheet doesn't look profitable because uh, it's the onboarding aspect of it. And in the end, they find themselves competing with traditional banks. I'll tell you why. Because they are only running on the Visa or Mastercard rails. They don't have a multiple layer socket, which will give them that agility. That's one. Secondly, when it comes to onboarding, it takes me tops five minutes to onboard a customer. If I, we, we do, we're the only platform that does self onboarding. You don't even need to go to an agent. You can just onboard yourself. We've got a full compliance proprietary platform. We built ourselves right from scratch which does everything. The reason why their balance sheets are weak is because they don't understand the balance sheet in the first place. In, in financial services, the money is made on the balance sheet and not on the PL. So if you can onboard and it's not on the balance sheet, then you've not made money. If you can onboard and transact and it's not on the balance sheet, you've not made money. You need to be able to move liability and you need to be able to move assets. So if you bring in remittance or if you bring in payment, you need to be able to monetize the payment as it goes through your ecosystem. How do you monetize it? You monetize it by commission. You monetize it by wholesaling so that you make a margin on it. And then also don't forget that they are in a negative interest rate regime. These are markets where you can make funded income. So they have to be innovative. You know, we are licensed by FCA and we're just waiting for a few approvals. We've done an acquisition. Once our approvals come through, the next thing we're doing is going in there to set up an immigrant-focused bank that's focusing on immigrants and running a channel into the diaspora, through the diaspora, right through to Africa. And we'll teach them banking. And, you, and you're funding it organically? Well, I don't know if that will be funded organically, but why not? We're waiting for regulatory approvals. But yes, the acquisition was funded organically. We've grown. Listen, we've We've had a phenomenal growth. We have an exciting balance sheet. The last I checked, our balance sheet has moved from last year, if I'm correct, about 11 million to about 33 million in balance sheet size. So it's a function of growth and we've got to keep growing. You can only keep right. working. How much of your motivation and inspiration is Chinese? The wallet platforms here are, are really super developed, uh, although it's a very highly localized uh, platform. Uh, how much of what you've achieved can I say is original and how much of that is um, something that you've either copied or, you know, or you're, you open sourced it from, from what's out there? Everything we've built so far is proprietary. I'm the designer, actually. I'm actually the designer in my company. So I design and other people build. Um, what we're about to do is definitely layer it on and we're looking at a few things. I'm also one firm believer in modular systems. I don't believe in hard code and everything. So I think that we've reached the point of scale. This is the point where we're going to do a lot of partnerships. 
This is a point where we're going to layer it on with a few modular platforms. One of the things I'm eyeing is WeChat. Um, the concept of WeChat is pretty simple, but sometimes it's best to partner and just grow it faster. Now you asked how many, what, what part of us is Chinese? Um, I think everything about us is African. You made a point at the beginning of this call, which I like, is the fact that there's so much happening in our ecosystem and the world doesn't know about it. If you come into the Ghanaian ecosystem, you'll be amazed the, um, the amount of development, the wealth that is sitting here that is proprietary, hard thinking, a lot of hard coding, although I'm not a big fan of hard coding. Um, what I think the disruptors will come to the gate. I think we're an invincible force of disruptors. We're moving and we move by the heartbeat. Um, we're going to get precision intelligence onto our platforms. We're going to get artificial intelligence onto another layer. So we're going to make it a lot more agile. And we're not just going to be at the disruptive gate of the banks, but we're going to go into other markets, bigger markets. I think that the next layer of dominance will come from Africa and will be driven by the fintech ecosystem. A lot of your evolution has been on the top of the mobile device. And um, what is your sense of how the platform uh, industry will evolve and what game you want to play in it? I want to put it. I, I think that it's going to be an explosion over the next 10 years based on when we launch, when we launch into 5G. When that explosion happens, IoT might change the game. Because what it is today is you need to be able to do notification. So you need an active phone number. But maybe 5G and data and the likes of WhatsApp will bring a new realm. That OTT, the whole idea of over the top, will bring another realm where you can still be able to push in app in WhatsApp messages, some form of messages that enable you to transact because the, 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 the power or the force behind digital wallets is the fact that you can receive a message or a notification. But if IoT can be stronger, then IoT gives a lot of competition to the networks and it changes the game. And it's how enabling regulations would also help that transform our ecosystems. But one thing I can assure you about Africa is we leapfrog everything so when we do 5G, I think things will change. When they change, will we be there? Yes. And that's why largely we're building our platforms towards OTT so that we're able to be a layer above the existing sockets. Uh, some people looking at what you're doing might say that your volume is still, you know, by national size, I think it's good. But, um, you know, by, by the kind of scale that you have in countries like, you know, China or, or some parts of the, of the West, um, you know, it's, um, it, it's, it's a proof of concept. Uh, would you would you uh, would you submit to that that this is what you're doing is actually a proof of concept? I would wish them well, <laughs> and then I'll tell them to keep watching us. We grew our first year; we did 385 transactions. So yes. even, even 2016, I can do 385 transactions and come to where I am today. Then it's only a function of time. Um, Time is a semblance of many things. But one thing I know is that we're going for global dominance. One thing I know is that we'll control this market and possibly a good part of Africa. 
do you even bother with uh, areas like blockchain, for example? Is, is that no. of interest? Let me tell you, the blockchain is a hype. Um, open ledgers for document management, I think, is a wonderful thing. But to say that you're going to use an underlying asset called crypto to change the world, it's a realm. It's a realm, it's a dark realm, and it's, it won't take over the world. If anything will take over the world, it's a wallet. If a card could not dominate the world, what will dominate the world in the latter end of the 21st century will be wallets. Because we move with our phones. Today, with my phone, I never have cash. I just need, and in fact, the, 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 the scary thing about ZPay is I can even fund my wallet with a Visa card. So if I'm stuck somewhere, I just have to fund my wallet and I transact on any merchant ecosystem. What happens if the Ghanaian central bank uh, invests in um, you know, a, a central bank digital currency? Would that wipe out your business? I think it's a good idea and I'm waiting for that because that will be the last push to interoperability. We need a digital currency, which is not a mask nor a mirror, but the same as a, a currency in the market. So if you issue 200 million in circulation M1, maybe 10 million will be digital and the remaining 190 will be cash, whatever form it is. What it means all of a sudden is that electronic money will come into the capital market. And so all of a sudden, if I have 20 million excess sitting in my wallet overnight, I can trade it, especially because I'm a, I'm a licensed intermediation player. So I think it's a necessary thing and if, if the governor is looking at it, I think it's a wonderful thing. The thing I can also assure you <clears throat> is that in the history of Ghana, this is probably the most innovative, forward-thinking, forward-looking governor regime we've got. We've got the best governors you can ever find. They are always five steps ahead of the game. Okay? It's scary when a regulator, a regulator can think into the game. It's scary for a player because then they can control you, right? But at the same time, if you look at it on the flip side of it, they actually enable the market to grow. We, we, we have about, about $35 billion going through electronic wallets. We need to bring it into the capital markets. It's a critical conversation. And when it comes into the capital market, you also play, make it a level playing field. This is economics 101. So that's my view on it. It'll be good for business, not bad for business. How has the pandemic uh, changed things for you? Um, and, you know, how, how has that influenced any of the thinking that you're going through and the decisions you're making uh, for after the pandemic is over? Um, sad to say, but the pandemic, I haven't seen it as a drawback. I've only seen it as opportunity for growth. We've grown phenomenal. Our growth on top of traditional growth has been about 76% during this period which is phenomenal. Um, we, we, we've done the most acquisitions, the most strategic moves we've been able to do it in 2020. So it's really been a wonderful year. It's it, it, the lockdown effect and the post-lockdown and the re-lockdowns has only improved business, which is a shame though, right? But then what, what I've always told everybody is that the essential workers were never going to hit and they were the core when it comes to remittance. And that group of people have always mattered. We've just never seen them that way. And so they have grown my business 
and I reward them every year. Actually, uh, just give us some big numbers again. Uh, how many customers you have? Uh, what is the uh, average transaction size? How many We have countries? about 2 million users. Every transaction size is about between $128 to about $150. We're looking to close a year with about $500 million total process volume. Number of transactions, we probably close with about $2.8 million. Um, 2020 was a year of sprint for us, and 2021 is sprint two. And sprint two is just finishing what we started. Are there any regulations that you're looking forward to in Ghana? If you were to influence uh, regulation, what, you know, what would you pay most attention to? I would have asked every ministry, every municipal, to have an open API. That's all we need for the uptake. Once they have open APIs with their bank account integrated onto these open APIs, then anybody can process any form of payment on their behalf. And then you open up the ecosystem and it becomes more efficient. At that point, you have efficiency. And the questions I've had to ask you, um, you know, um, these are questions that I've been asking all around the world. And to be able to get the answers that I got from you in Ghana, uh, it just thrills me. Uh, and, and helps me put in perspective um, my own um, understanding of how payments is evolving, how financial services is uh, shaping up, uh, and where the disruption will come from. Um, you know, and, and it's very interesting that you are creating that disruption right. in your market. Thank you very much. Uh, and as I said, this is a continuing conversation. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.